Jesus, we thank you so much for dying on the cross for our sin, for taking everything that we deserved and have earned by our sin. You took it all from us. You nailed it to the cross in your own body. And in turn, you offer us everything. You offer us forgiveness, number one. You offer us a new life. God, it's so wonderful. It's so awesome. And so we, we praise you for that. We thank you. Jesus, this is all about you. We study your word, Jesus, because you told us if we would believe what Moses wrote, then we could believe you. And Lord, we, we buy in. We trust that. We, we thank you for our time now in the book of Genesis and, and seeing how, Lord, you weave a story of your faithfulness. It's so good, Jesus. Lord, we, we trust you. You created us and you have We've done something that no one in this world can offer. No politician, no scientist can offer us the peace that you give us and the love that you shower upon us. God, you're the source of all. And we thank you, we love you, we seek you now. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Today's Bible study is called Abram's Believe It or Not. You guys ever seen that book, Ripley's Believe It or Not? Totally creepy has all kinds of weird stuff in it. Well, that was my inspiration for this study. There was a Christian lady who had to do a lot of traveling for her business. And uh, she was doing a lot of flying, but flying made her really nervous, really uncomfortable. And so she used to take her Bible with her, and, uh, and it would calm her down as, as they were taking off, as they were landing. She would always take her Bible out and read. It just helped her, you know? And one of the times that she was on the plane, this guy next to her kind of scoffed a little bit as she took the Bible out, just kind of like, oh my gosh, this lady, what is she doing? And uh, as time went by and she was just kind of reading, just kind of thinking about it, and he said, he kind of re leaned over and he said, do you really believe all that stuff that's written in there? And she's like, yeah, it's the Bible, duh. No, she, but she did. She said, yeah, I do believe it. And he said, well, what about that guy and the fish and getting swallowed? Do you really, did he, three days? Do you think he lived for three days in a whale? And she said, oh, Jonah? Well, yeah, it's in the Bible, so I believe it. I believe that's God's word. I totally believe it. He's like, well, how can you know? How do you know? How do you really know that it's true? And she said, well, you know, I haven't really thought of, you know what? When I get to heaven, I'll just ask him. And he's like, well, what if he isn't in heaven? And she's like, well, I, I suppose then you could ask him. <laughs> she had no problem believing, all right? Well, the disciples of Jesus, when they came to him and they said, what do we do to do the works of God? What is needed to do the works of God? They came to Jesus. They asked him that. What do you want from me, Jesus? What do I need to do to be like you? There has to be something I'm able to contribute. And he answered them in John chapter 6, verse 29. He said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he sent. Just believe? How can that possibly be all that I need to do? I mean, I've been to church, or I've at least I have my opinion of what's required of me, and it seems that it has to do a lot with the Ten Commandments. 
or behavior, that I have to have a certain kind of behavior to please God, to do the works of God. But Jesus, he blows that out of the water and he says, just believe, just believe. Jesus explains that believing in him is all that they needed to do. And he goes on in in chapter 6, verse 35 of John, and he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said that they needed their hunger and their thirst satisfied before they could serve God. They needed their hunger and their thirst satisfied first. But he sadly declares what is holding them back from this completely fulfilled life. In verse 36, he says, But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. That's what was holding them back at this point in their life. That they had seen him, but they didn't believe. They doubted. They did not have the one thing required to get everything that they longed for. And that one thing was faith, to believe. They had all kinds of excuses. I'm not good enough, Jesus, Peter would say. Depart from me, I'm sinful. I've sinned too much. I don't know enough theology. I'm afraid or I'm just too tired. I've tried so hard already. And little did they know that they were looking right at Jesus, yet they weren't seeing all that he was. Like those those images from the 90s that you had to look at and cross your eyes, and then all of a sudden you'd see some image when you crossed your eyes. You remember those? They were in like science magazines and... I had like 10 of them. I told you I was a nerd when I was growing up. All right. But Jesus is like the same way. If you looked at him and you stared at him, you might see what he was talking about. Spurgeon gives us a great quote. He says, I would recommend that you either believe God up to the hilt or else don't believe him at all. Believe this book of God, every letter of it, or else reject it. There is no logical standing place between the two. Be satisfied with nothing less than a faith that swims in the deep of divine revelation. A faith that paddles about the edges of the water is poor faith at best. It is little better than a dry land faith and is not good for much. Well, we now are in Genesis chapter 11. All right, and we're going to be talking about this believing that Jesus asks of his disciples. You and I are his disciples, and he calls us to believe, and we're going to learn about that today. But we pick up, and, and we'll pick up in chapter 11, verse 9, to just kind of review, and it says, therefore, its name was called Babel, this tower that they had built, because the Lord confused the languages of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. So, to put down this united rebellion of Nimrod that we studied last week, this Babylonian kingdom, God gave everyone new languages to keep people separated into smaller groups. So one person could not ever control the entire population again as Nimrod did. Until the time of the end, of course, when we'll see the world again united in one language and under one ruler. And then we see, um, well, and so people will think sometimes, man, God is so mean. 
to come down and, and confuse everyone's languages, but this is just protection. God doesn't want everyone to, to be under that one evil ruler again. You know, he's, just pr- he's putting them in smaller groups so that they can concentrate on those smaller relationships. The rest of chapter 11, we, we have the details of the line of Shem, which we looked at last week again. In verse 14, it says, Selah lived 30 years and he begot Eber. And Eber is an interesting guy because this is where we get the name Hebrews. Hebrews. And you guys all know the greatest joke about the Hebrews, right? How does Moses get his coffee? He brews it. Ah. Well, his son, Peleg, was the one who lived when the earth was divided, it says. And, and that was in chapter 10. But Peleg was the one, and it says, during his days, the earth was divided. And, and his time in history lines up at, with the end of the Ice Age, when the rising oceans uh, rose to the point where the earth was no longer connected from land bridges, uh, like in Alaska to Russia, and also down in Indonesia. All those islands used to be connected. Australia, they were all there. So if someone asks you, well, how did the kangaroos get to Australia? They walked, or hopped, actually. They just hopped there. During the Ice Age, the oceans were lowered. Land bridges connected everything. No big deal. All right. So then we get to verse 27 of chapter 11. And it says, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begat Lot. And Haran died before his father Terah in in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. All right, so we're going to put up a map real quick for you guys so you can see kind of where we're talking about. So I know it's, it's small words, so don't worry about the words, but if you could kind of get your bearings, this is the Sinai Peninsula down here. Here's Egypt. Israel would be right in the middle. Iraq over here. Babylon would be right in the middle right there. And so we have this place called Ur, Ur of the Chaldees, and that is where Abraham was born, where he lived. And, and you can kind of see the, the solid line is the route that Abraham is going to take in the next few weeks as we journey with Abraham, we're going to see him. We're going to see him today get all the way up to the very top. And by the end of today, that's where he's going to be at. Uh, so just know that that's where we're at. So we're, right now we're in Ur. And so go to the picture of the, um, the ziggurat. They have discovered, well, they didn't discover, this is there in Ur. This is a ziggurat of Ur. And so this is one of those uh, ziggurats, they, temples that they used back in ancient times. And this was actually in there. I mean, you can go now and there's pictures of military guys. The U.S. military has tons of pictures of them standing on this ziggurat. Uh, but this is probably a ziggurat that was there at the time of Abraham. He may have gone up on this ziggurat to sacri- sacrifice to idols. Uh, but you can see that these ziggurats, like the Tower of Babel was probably a ziggurat, that they were built all over the place because that's how the culture was. They think we need to build a tower for our, our worship. And so um, this is the ziggurat of Ur. I was teaching my kids about it, so I had this picture, so I thought I would share, it, share with you guys. Well, we get to verse 29 in chapter 11, and it says, Then Abraham and Nahor took wives, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren and had no child. We are introduced right here to the major challenge in Abram and Sarah's life. 
She is barren. If I trip over the words of these names, it's because they're going to change here in just a little while. We're uh, not this week, but in a couple weeks, we're going to find out how their names change to Abraham and Sarah. But right now, they're Abram and Sarai, and we're going to find out more about them. But the major challenge in their life is that Sarai is barren. She's barren. And it's interesting because Abram means father. Abram means father. And people probably thought this was kind of ironic there in the land of Ur. All his friends were like, hey, big daddy, because that's what his name was. But they had no kids. And I bet every time someone said, hey, daddy, hey, father, it kind of broke his heart a little bit more, just like, man, why is my life like this? Why is my life unfair? And Sarai literally means contention, arguing. She was not too happy about this at all. She was not okay with her lot in life. She was willing to say, I don't really think this is fair. The world is so full of people who can have kids and they're completely irresponsible parents. And here's me, Sarai. I I have this husband, Abraham. Abraham, We're good people. Why can't we have kids? She's raw. You know, she's tired of it. She's frustrated. She's angry. That's where we meet this couple. Abram and Sarai did not know God at this point. So there's no solution for the deep hurt that they're feeling. No hope. There's no human way for this problem to be fixed. No matter what they do, no matter how many mandrakes they eat, it's not going to fix it. If you, never mind. There's no, uh, you know, and, and it's often like this in our lives. A trial comes into our life that just breaks us. The unjustness and unfairness of it just kills us. But it's at this end of hope that God so often comes through, that his love is seen. Because it's when when we tire of every other source of hope that we finally, almost reluctantly, turn in humility to him. And he's, so, and he's patient enough to let us seek out all these other options if we want to. And you know what we finally find when we turn to him and we come to him? We find love. We find hope. We find rescue. We find miracles. Nothing we deserve. Nothing we did to earn any of it. Nothing but his love and grace to all who just finally turn to him. Well, This, we find out, in this very situation of her barrenness, is the very situation that God is going to end up using to show them who he is, what he does, and how much he loves them. This couple, you know, they're down and out. Life has dealt them a short deck. They have nothing to work with, yet God is going to transform multiple kingdoms and thousands of people during their lifetime, and literally billions of people are going to follow in their footsteps throughout the history of the world. And they have no idea what God is going to do at this point when we meet them. They don't even know who he is. They're going to learn. And they're going to learn by walking with him. Abram and Sarai are idol worshipers from a land and a family of idol worshipers right now. In fact, uh, in Joshua, the book of Joshua, chapter 24, 
Joshua said to all the people, verse 2, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of the river in old times, and they served other gods, Joshua said. So, but this is not a problem. God still loves them. God still loves them. And he's still pursuing them. And we might look at the world around us and say, they are serving so many other gods. It's not a problem. God loves them. He's not offended to the point where he's done with them. He loves them. They are going to be evangelized. They're going to be saved. And evangelism is nothing more than simply explaining or teaching who God is and what God does. Not what you need to do for him. Our part in evangelism is to believe. We're taught who God is. Our part is to believe. And in this story that we're going to read today, God is the one evangelizing himself. But we get to partner in that work today through his spirit. We go to all the broken people who are disappointed at the end of their rope without hope, and we can introduce them to the only hope, the only supernatural source of life and peace. Jesus Christ. We can invite them to a place where they can learn about him, learn who he is. So we see now in verse 31, then Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abraham's wife, and they went out from Ur, and from, uh, Ur of the Chaldees, and they went, went to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So a question for you. Who was the smartest man in the Bible? Abraham, because he knew a lot. Terah is Abram's father, and he leads them on a journey from Ur to Canaan, but they make an unexpected stop in Haran. And they stay there until Terah dies. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, it gives us some insight into this story. In, in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, it says, And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, which would be in Ur. He says, God appeared to Abraham. And he said, get out of your country and from your relatives and come out to a land that I will show you. Then he came out to the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, he, when his father was dead, he moved him uh, to this land in which you now dwell. We see in chapter 12 of Genesis, we're going to keep going and see chapter 12, verse 1. We see this appearance of God. So we're kind of backing up a little bit. We see the story. We see Terah take Abraham and Lot and everyone. It says that Terah was leading them. But now we see kind of what really happened from Abraham's perspective. In chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord said to Abraham, he had said to Abraham, he had said, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. God appeared to Abraham. He revealed himself. He chose Abraham and he explained to him who he was. He could have chosen anyone in the world, but he chose Abram. Why? Because Abram wasn't 
the greatest. He wasn't the strongest. He wasn't the most noble. He did not have it all together. And he wasn't even seeking God. God just revealed himself to Abraham. And maybe you have someone in your life that you're praying for, and you know that they are not seeking God. That's not the condition. If you start praying for them, praying for that person that God would reveal, would open up their heart and would reveal himself to them, that he would teach them, they can respond, just like we're going to see Abram. God chose him in his love. He chose him in his grace. He showed his face to him, which is an act of love and acceptance, saying, Abram, I've just chosen you. I've chosen to reveal myself to you. And after he appeared to Abram, he reveals his plan to Abram. And he says in verse 2 and 3 here in chapter 12, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. God is so gracious to Abraham. He proclaims all the good he intends to give to Abram. Promises, just promises, just thrown around promises like they're nothing. God is a God of promises. Look at the things specifically that he promises to Abram. He says, I promise to make you a great nation. We know that as the nation of Israel today. He says, I will bless you. God says, I am the initiator of love and doing good things. I'm not doing this so that you will bless me. I am going to just bless you. I love you first. I love you. I'm the initiator of love. And I will what? I promise I will make your name great. It's interesting. That's so true today. All Christians, Jews, and Muslims honor the name of Abraham. You're like, wow, that's pretty crazy how that's come true. And then he says, you shall be a blessing. And it always works like that. First, we are blessed so that we can be a blessing. First, we are served so that we can be taught how to serve. Jesus, when he was talking to Peter and, and he, was, he took off his clothes and he was about to wash Peter's feet, Peter's like, no, you're not going to wash my feet. I should, I should wash yours. Or I mean, this is not going to happen. You are God and Jesus is like, unless I wash you, Peter, you have no part in me. You're not going to understand me. You're not going to know my servant-hearted nature. And Peter's like, fine, give me a whole bath. And Jesus is like, calm down, boy. That's not what I'm talking about. We have to be served first. When you get up and, and spend time with Jesus in the morning, you are allowing him to serve you. You are allowing him to wash you. You're allowing him to minister to you. I've come to depend on that time with the Lord. I listen to books or I, I spend time in the word. And, and that time, I just, I'm so looking for how Jesus is going to serve me. And from that, it equips me to serve other people. And I love it. And that's what he explains to Abraham here too. He says, I'm going to bless those who bless you and I'm going to curse those who curse you. You are going to be the way that I speak and work in the whole 
world, Abraham. Everyone is going to be blessed through you, and the Messiah is going to come from your offspring. In Galatians 3, it it speaks about this, and it says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. What? How can that happen? Abraham, I can imagine Abraham thinking, this sounds great, God. The God who just appeared to me and started talking to me and making all kinds of promises to me. But my life does not line up with what I hear your promises saying. I can't really see how all this could possibly be. It's, it's unbelievable. But we're told that Abraham did believe it. We're told that he did believe it. And he humbled himself and received the blessing. He was just like, thank you. His simple response was, thank you. Okay, I believe it. And that's what God's love does. It's unearned. It's it's not fair. It's totally crazy. It's unbelievable. But it's just thrown out there for you to accept it or not. And it takes humility to accept it. To say that God is just going to forgive me every day, no matter what I did. His mercies are new every morning. That's unbelievable. It's crazy. And it takes humility to receive it, to lay hold of it. We have to get to that place where we realize we can do nothing to earn it. We did everything to lose it. We've run away, thrown it away, and rejected so many times, yet there he stands with love offered in an open hand every single day. Forgiveness and relationship if you want to just hit the road with him. It's kind of how God is working with Abram right here. He says, Abraham, come. I love you. Let's go for a walk. Let's journey. Let's get out of this land that you're in right now. Let's go to a promised land. I promise you that we will get there if you go with me. I promise you that it's going to be awesome. I promise you that I will walk with you. Promises. That's how God works. He makes promises and we either believe them or we don't. We accept them in humility Or we say, that's too good to be true. I don't believe it. That was the two options laid before us. So we see chapter 12, verse 4. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Haran. That's where God counts Abraham as having finally believed. Where did God speak to him at? In Ur, where is he finally picking up the story of him walking by faith? In Haran. We'll we'll speak more on that in just a minute. Abraham here, he's taking the first steps of faith. He's taking his first steps of faith. He's believing in the unseen. He's trusting an invisible God. He is by no means perfect in his faith, as we're going to see. He's just starting out. He's just checking the waters to see if God can truly be trusted. He's testing it out. But we read in Hebrews eleven eight, 8, 
It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to the place where he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. He didn't even know. He had never been to Canaan. He didn't even know if it was a real place. But he obeyed. He trusted by faith. And we need to back up here for a minute and realize that he he was, he'd already, like I said, journeyed from Ur to Haran, but he didn't obey. That journey was not in obedience. Why? We learn that he was told by God to leave his family and to be on his own, to get away from their influence and to follow God only. In other words, God wanted to be his leader. God wanted to lead him. But Abraham... He wasn't ready to do that yet. Abraham followed his father Terah to Haran. As we saw at the end of chapter 11, it said, Terah led them. That's not what God had called Abram to do. Terah means delayed. Delayed. (laughs) Haran, the city that they stopped in up at the top of the map up there, it means dried up and parched by the sun. So until Abram Abram surrenders to the Lord's leading his life, he remains in a dry and parched place. He delays. And the same is true for us, isn't it? If you follow anyone else, even if it's your good old dad, You will not experience the blessings that God has planned and intended for you. You will just naturally be stuck in a dry land, feeling your life is stuck, feeling you're just waiting for the next big thing, but it never comes. Who are you following? What do you look for for your direction? Abram knew where he was supposed to go, but he was unwilling to leave the shelter of his dad, the protection of his dad. He was comfortable with his dad. His dad probably financed the journey from Ur to Haran. So he didn't have to put it all out there. And from studying these dates, we see that he waited for God and he waited for his dad, Terah, to die for probably about 15 years. 15 years The father of faith did nothing. Hung out in the desert where it was dry, wasting 15 years of his life. He didn't even get started on his journey until he was 75 years old, it says. When he could have been living in a promised land, he could have been enjoying God's blessings. Matthew chapter 8, verse 21 says, Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Man, that is basically the same conversation God could have had with Abraham in Haran. One of his disciples, you know, they came to Jesus with a problem. He liked Jesus, but he respected other leaders in his life as well, including his dad. And he asked if he could just wait until those leaders weren't so important to him anymore. Those leaders were gone. That's basically what's going on. And Jesus said, they can't lead you to life. 
You must follow me if you want life. Let them deal with it. I want you more, and I can lead you better than they can. You follow me. You got to follow me. You know, and I can just imagine Jesus having that same conversation with Abraham. Abraham, what are you doing in Haran? This is not a cool place to hang out. But God's patience and his love are very amazing here with Abram. Even though Abram waits in unbelief for 15 years, God is still working. God is faithful when we are faithless. God holds us when we are letting go. God's love never fails. When Peter denies Jesus three times, obviously not ready to let Jesus lead the way, Jesus looked at him. It says that on, after the third time Peter denied, he looked and Jesus' eyes caught him. And Jesus is being tortured and he's, he's, in, he's captive at that moment, but he catches Peter's eyes and he looks at him. And all kinds of people put all kinds of things in Jesus like, oh, I'm so angry and disappointed with you, Peter. I doubt that's what Jesus' eyes were because Jesus' eyes were never like that. Jesus looked at him and the love and the patience pierced through to Peter's heart and Peter broke down weeping and he left. Just couldn't handle that type of love. Not condemning, not disappointed, love. It was too much for Peter at that point. And you've blown it too. But not too bad for my love, Jesus says. You are not beyond my reach, Jesus says. I am not scared of your sin. I am in love with you. He says, look into my eyes like Peter did. Look into my eyes and see if there's any disappointment. Does anything in my demeanor show you that I'm unhappy with you? Like the Song of Solomon says in Song of Solomon 4.9, you have ravished my heart my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look from your eyes, with one link of your necklace. But this is crazy because in that analogy in the Song of Solomon, it's Jesus who is ravished by us. By us. He is the one that is so in love with us that he... He comes back to us to get us every time that we fail. He loves you more than you will ever love him. He is love perfected. He is the very ideal and love in bodily form, always coming back after us even when we deny him. It's awesome that we just sang that song about being ravished by his love because that's totally a God thing. I'd never even heard that song before. But it's cool that we're talking about it today. And again, knowing back, going back to that Hebrews chapter eight, uh, 11, verse 8, it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he would receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. When Abraham finally surrendered to the loving lead of God, his actions line up with his faith. When he finally surrenders to God's love, that's when his actions line up. 
And so many times the message that I get or the message that we get at church or maybe just that the enemy puts into our mind is that your actions need to line up with what Jesus says before he accepts you. And that is absolutely untrue. And if you could remember one thing from today's study, I hope it's that. That the actions follow your acceptance, your surrender to his love for you. His promises made to you. His faithfulness. The actions always follow. They always follow. That's why God frees us from the performance-based relationship that our flesh so desires and draws us with cords of love into a relationship based on love, on one-way love, the love that God promised to anyone who's willing to receive it and believe it. Will you believe it? Martin Luther said in his intro to, to Romans that the only thing Jesus said was a sin was unbelief. Everything else was paid for already at the cross. Nothing can hold you back from God if you believe. Not pain, not circumstances, not even your mind or your own sin. Nothing can hold you back if you believe. Only your doubt is what keeps you from the Lord. Unbelief. We have God's promises. We have God's love. We have who God is described to us in the Bible, but we choose not to believe them. We do it all the time. God says, you can rejoice at all times, and we don't believe it. So we miss out on days that we could have been rejoicing because we look at our circumstances and say, how can I rejoice in this situation? Instead of just believing, God's saying, you could rejoice. In me, I've given you a promise. If you would just step out and rejoice, I would meet you there and you would have reason to rejoice. Belief is how we access this thing. All that God has for us, his promises. And just like Abram didn't know where he's going, he only knew who God was and the promises that God had made. He had to trust the invisible. He had to see the unseen. And thus the journey of the father of faith begins. It's a big deal that he really believes. C.S. Lewis tells us, you never know how much you really believe until anything, until, it is, uh, until it's truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death. It's easy to say you believe that a rope is strong as long as you're merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang by that rope over a precipice wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it, how much you really believed in its strength? Well, we move on now to Genesis chapter 12, verse 5, and he says, Then Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and all the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go into the land of Canaan. And so they came to the land of Canaan, and Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the tabernacle tree of Morah. And the Canaanites were in the land at that point in time. And uh, so I'm going to show you a picture of a door that, that I, uh, this is called, they call it Abraham's door. So this is in the northern end of Israel, 
And as Abraham would have been journeying down from Haran, down into Israel, he would have gotten to this. And this is a Canaanite door that they have discovered just recently in Tel Dan, which is in the very northern part of Israel. And so I got a couple pictures here. Um, that's kind of backed away. They covered it up. But this door is probably a door that Abraham would have walked through. A very door that he, he probably would have walked up those steps and through that door. It lines up with the time period, and this was a city on the northern end of, edge of Israel that he would have had to go through to say, hey, I'm coming into the land and meet the leaders and stuff like that. One more picture. There you go. I did that all through Israel, doing selfies. It was, it was weird. But, yeah, so this is, this is probably a door that he would have gone through. So now we see Abraham is leading. He's leading his wife. His wife who's broken. His wife who's struggling. He said, you know what? I'm going to believe God's promises. And so he starts leading. He, he's leading his nephew, who's become like a son to him, someone God's put into his life. Leading those who he had influence over, all the people who were in his, in his world, in his life the people he had gathered in, in Ur and in Haran. And he, he's becoming transformed. Why? Because he is now a follower of God. He can now become a leader of men and women. And that's the only way it happens. That leadership transformation is so needed in our families, in our lives. The men of this church need to lead their wives lead their families, lead their children, lead their jobs. And how does that happen? By following the Lord, not knowing where you're going. We need to follow the example of Abram, who simply believed the promises of God. God had promised, let's go to a promised land. I promise you will get there if you go with me. I promise you it's going to be awesome. I promise you that I will walk with you the whole way. Your family is destined to honor God. God has promised that your family can honor him. They've been chosen. You are destined to be a special treasure for the glory of God to be seen in. You've been chosen for that already. That's a promise of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it says, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. But do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Or do you shrink back? Do you believe the voices that tell you that this is impossible? That God couldn't love a failure like you or a betrayer like me? That you've made too many mistakes or wasted too much time Abraham is 75. He's basically dead. And yet he's going to start out, no offense to anyone who's 75, but he's going to start out on a journey. He has so much that God is going to do with him because time doesn't matter to God. He's waiting for belief. Grace is so wonderful. It's so undeserved. It's so unearned. It's so unbelievable. We literally can't earn it. 
And we're so free to say, I don't deserve it. I don't deserve these promises. I don't deserve for God to use my family or use me in my work and in my family and my life. But Jesus was good enough. Jesus earned it so that I don't have to. Jesus was good so I don't have to be. Jesus was accepted so that I can be as well if I just believe. He holds out his hand and says, come with me. Will you respond to that invitation to come with, no matter how old you are or young you are? He is holding out his hand. Will you reach out your hands of faith and take hold of his hand and sow his promises into yours? Accepting them, appropriating them into your life by faith. It's so wonderful that after you have taken his hand, his grace by faith, that you can look down and see the hand that is holding you or that you're holding in your hand, and that very hand has holes to prove the love that holds you, the love that he has for you, the proof of his love for you. It has your very name inscribed in the hand that's leading you. So there's no doubt that he knows your name. There's no doubt he knows your doubts. But he's still asking you to believe. He's still calling you and saying, just look at my hand. Take my hand by faith. He has provided all you need and he has no shame in you. He loves you enough to tattoo your name right on his hand. Right next to the holes that bore his love. So good. He's so good. He says, follow me, abide in me, feed on me, he says. Never, ever leave me, you and me, forever, a team. You have no idea where you're going like Abraham did. You have no idea. I'm going to take you to places you would never, ever believe. And in John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, comes to me, takes my hand, shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. But that verse at the end, verse 36, he says, But I say to you, you have seen me, and yet you don't believe. Have you seen how loving Jesus is? Have you observed his grace and his truth? Maybe never before today have you really seen how loving he is. Maybe you still don't get it. Will you believe when you see? Can you close your eyes and open up the eyes of your heart and your faith and somehow say, I believe that he loves me. I believe that he will take care of everything I need. I believe. I believe. I believe the struggles I'm in and the trials I'm in in no way discount his love for me. But his love for me goes beyond everything. And in him I am totally healed. In him I am totally set free. In him I am totally 100% accepted in God, by God. I believe.
That is what salvation is. That is what this whole thing of being a Christian is, is you being accepted by God. You believing that he loves you. Jesus Christ, we come to you. We have heard with our ears the good things you promised, the good things you do. Lord, I pray that we see your promised forgiveness, your work on the cross, that your holes in your hands and the blood that you poured out proves your love for us. And God, I pray that we would not be condemned with that last verse in John chapter 6, 36, that says they saw and they didn't believe. God, I pray we would believe. Abraham, he saw you and he believed. He heard your promises and he believed. And so he is called the father of faith. He is seen as righteous. He's seen as loved and everything that you have promised us as well. We can partake, we can have every promise ours if we would just believe. Father, as the, as the, the broken father said when his, when his child was sick and dying, he said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Let our delays die. Let our unbelief die, Father. Show us where we don't believe. Show us where we're shrinking back in doubt. And let it die, Lord. We need to believe. We don't want any more delays in our walk with you. We want to be able to look in your eyes and see how you are overcome with emotion over us. Father, your love is so amazing. Your, your grace is so incredible. And I pray for anyone in here who has never once known that they were forgiven and that you love them. And I pray that as they've been taught this good news, this truth, I pray that they would respond with a simple prayer that says, Jesus, save me. Jesus, save me. We know, Father, that you will never say no to that prayer. You will always respond, yes and amen. You are my child and I offer you salvation. I offer you everything that you need because I love you. God, I pray not a single person in here could say they have not seen you in your love today. And God, I pray that we would all believe. You would help us to believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. Jesus, Come to us now. Help us to worship you in spirit and truth.